So if everybody had a nice, or I wasn't very nice, talking about shame and stuff like that and facing our inner critic, I would ask you to share, but we won't. Just leave that between you and Jesus. So we're, we're moving to the second talk as we sort of progress through John chapter 4. And again, I'm progressing in a very broad way. We're not going to go into some sort of deep exegesis looking at each passage, but hopefully everybody can put themselves in the place of the Samaritan woman, knowing what those lies are, the shame is. But we're going to move to the, the important part, that key encounter with the person of Jesus. So in John chapter 4, we have a woman who's there and she sort of encounters the Lord, not even expecting it. He's sitting there and she, he begins to enter into a dialogue with her. Not only just entering into a dialogue with her, talking to her, and you see the apostles are surprised, but not only Jesus was talking to a woman in private, but a Samaritan woman who wasn't a Jew, plus a sinner, you could refer that they would have also known that she was a sinner. But here she asked this woman for a drink of water, something that was very, of course, symbolic, but very personal, very intimate. And then with the woman with the hemorrhage, Jesus and that encounter, which wasn't, as the first one, a face-to-face encounter, at least at first, that he feels the power go out of him. And so as the crowd disperses, he turns around. Who touched me? And he sees and encounters the woman. And so there's the dialogue that Jesus has with her. But what I want to focus on now in the second talk is not so much the fact that Jesus talks to these women. We're going to look a little bit at some of the dialogue. But something that in the first one is very much implied, and then the second one is very much highlighted, the fact that in this encounter, central to the encounter, Jesus sees the woman. The first one, in the encounter with the Samaritan woman who's hiding, he sees her, and he sees her in the light of the noonday sun. So you could imagine, here's the sun that's highlighting everything, not casting any shadow. He sees her in full light as she is. Not, no shadows, nothing hidden. And so he's able to, to, to see her as she fully is. And so that's why I think not only the noonday sun is important because she's going there at that time because of her shame, because the noonday sun, there are no shadows and you can't hide anything. She's fully exposed, but she's fully revealed. She's fully revealed. And then, in the other one, he turns around and he says, Who touched me? And it says that he saw her. He saw the woman. He looked. His human eyes looked upon her. She could no longer hide. And so there's this encounter, but it is being seen by Jesus. In a certain sense, in both of their cases, it's not something they wanted. Another woman didn't. She wanted to just kind of touch and then leave. But both of them, because of Christ's initiative, 
one his planning and the other you'll see that he also sort of planned it or at least he looked forward to it he sees them and this is not like jesus is hunting you down he sees you he's not the eye of sauron to go back to the to the lord of the rings but he sees her and what is this this is about why is it that jesus takes the initiative to see these women is because jesus knows what we need he knows that even though these women are hiding and filled with shame and insecurity he knows their desire and their need to be seen known and loved and he knows all of our desires to be seen known and loved so no matter what kind of walls we put up what our kind of disguises that we have no matter how much we try to hide or to put a smoke screen out because we are who we are as humans created in god's image and likeness but also just because the product of evolution we, we are communal individuals we need to be seen known and loved and that's the sort of the irony of shame we say that we don't need it <coughs> i don't need anybody I don't need to see me but in fact that you're saying it you're crying out to be seen so often that the person who's most filled with shame has a pretty significant attention-seeking behavior. Most of it's self-destructive, as we probably could have alluded to earlier. Please, I don't want to be seen. But look at how I'm behaving and how I'm dressing and how I'm acting. We all want to be seen. And so it speaks to that need to, to be seen. And there, there's one, the word, I think it's deeper, to be respected. I talked about this before in, in other talks. There is another researcher, his name is Gilligan. I forgot his first name, James Gilligan. And in the late 90s, he wrote a book called Violence. And he went to these super intense prisons. There were nothing but murderers. And he, uh, people with horrific crimes. And he, he went to all of them and he said, why is it that you did what you did. Why did you commit these horrible crimes? And he found that in asking all of these different criminals, that there was something universal they all had to say. They all did it because they wanted respect. They wanted to be respected. And if you think of it, where does the word respect come from? Like etymology, it's respect, re, means again, spectare your spectacles to be seen, not just glanced at, to be really looked at. They wanted to be seen, they wanted to be noticed. And nobody was noticing them because of course most of them come from broken families and poverty and these horrible situations. So if I kill this person, oh, I'm gonna be seen. I'm gonna be respected. So this desire for respect to come out, to be seen, to come out in some pretty unhealthy ways. Some pretty unhealthy ways. One of the most beautiful passages about this need to be seen that we all have comes from Pope Francis in his encyclical Amoris Laetitia, number 128. I'll read the passage. It's a rather long one, but it's beautiful. He says, The aesthetic experience of love is expressed in that gaze which contemplates other persons as ends in themselves, even if they are infirm elderly or physically unattractive. A look of appreciation has enormous importance, and to begrudge it is usually hurtful. 
How many things do spouses and children sometimes do in order to be noticed? Much hurt and many problems result when we stop looking at one another. This lies behind the complaints and grievances we often hear in families. My husband does not look at me. He acts as if I were invisible. Please look at me when I'm talking to you. My wife no longer looks at me. She only has eyes for our children. In my own home, nobody cares about me. They do not even see me. It's as if I don't even exist. Love opens our eyes and enables us to see, beyond all else, the great worth of a human being. And so as much as we deny it, we desire to be seen. And so there's this connection, though, that I think we can notice between shame and hiding and seeing. Because shame tends us to hide. Adam and Eve didn't want to be seen by God. There's a connection there. And think of it. How many of the times have you encountered maybe your children or some of the students or someone else? How can you tell when someone is guilty or filled with shame? They will not look you in the eyes. They won't make eye contact. And it was something that was always interesting to see. The first time often a student would come into my office and we'd talk, I could tell they wouldn't look at me in the eyes. But after a while, particularly once they overcame their shame, every time, make eye contact. Now sometimes, of course, we don't make eye contact because we're ADD and we're in a large crowd and too much going on. But whenever, whenever we're ashamed, we are not going to make eye contact. So there's something connected between shame and sight more than anything else. We don't want to be seen. And we fear, as we talked about earlier, that others see me. They know what I've done. And that's when the paranoia and, and really getting trapped in your head can start. But the fact is, we might be able to hide from our friends and our co-workers and our loved ones and our priests, but you're not going to be able to escape the gaze of Christ, the encounter with Jesus. Now, often we want to because we're afraid that that look is going to be one of judgment. It's the same reason that Again, we, we value privacy and we value the seal of confession. That's why we have a, a, a screen there. And I think it's good. It protects the penitent and it often protects the priest. But a lot of times there because people are ashamed and they don't want to be seen. Particularly they think the priest is going to judge them. Look, people, if anybody is judging the judge face, it's not the priest. I already know what you did. I mean, I've been a priest long enough. I know what people do. There's only so many bad things that humans can do. And I pretty much heard them all. None of them surprises me. And I'm human too. I know what people have done. They think I can read souls. No, I can't. I just know what a 14-year-old kid does, all right? I know what a grown man does. And I don't care. I don't care what you've done. And I don't remember what you've done. And I'm not going to talk about what you've done. It's your own insecurities that make you don't want to go to confession. That's the thing. Nobody, I don't agree with confession. I don't think you should confess your sins to a priest. Well, why not? Well, I just confess them to God. Well, then why don't you hang your head under the sink and get baptized? Why don't you go pour some olive oil over your head to get confirmed? 
No one has any problem with priests communicating grace to other sacraments, but when it comes to confession, we have a problem theologically with it. No, there's something else. It's shame. It's insecurity. It's understandable. But, you know, three Hail Marys, go do what you need to do. All right? God's mercy is infinite. And that's what we see. Christ's gaze is the gaze of the Father. The loving Father who is not there to judge or condemn. In fact, in fact, Adam and Eve are, 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 why are Adam and Eve kicked out of the Garden of Eden? Do you know why they're kicked out of the Garden of Eden in the scripture passage? Do you know why? Yes, exactly. It's not because they eat these terrible things of kicking you out. No, they say if they eat from the tree of, of, of life, they'll live forever. And so we'll live forever cut off from God. And so we want to save them from that. So we're going to put them outside of the gate, the gate, the garden of Eden. So it's mercy. It's actually mercy. So it doesn't become a, a perpetual and eternal uh, condemnation. So, but Christ comes to reveal God the Father. And so remember, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've been seen by me, you've been seen by the Father. You've been seen by the Father. So the gaze of Christ, he is the, the sacrament of the sacrament. He, well, he's the sacrament of the Father. So he's He's looking at you. Jesus is looking at you. But it's the gaze of the Father. It's okay. It's not judgmental. He's not there to accuse. He's not, I can't believe you did this. He's not the God who's got his little notepad, every little infraction. I saw what you did. Our parents may be like that. We, we may fear others are like that, but that's not how the Father is. Look, with the Samaritan woman, he, he, he's, he, he doesn't even technically actually bring up her sin, as we'll see. First thing he says is, give me a drink, I'm thirsty. And then he already knows what she's done. And he doesn't say, oh, I'm not drinking from you, I know what you're doing. You're living a life of sin. He, and in fact, if you really go look at it, he says, yeah, you haven't had one husband. You've had five husbands, and the one that you're with is not your husband. This is, I think, referring to sort of like different gods that the, some of the Samaritans may have worshipped over time. But he doesn't bring up the moral law. He never refers to it. He never says, yes, there's not your husband, and you're breaking the Sixth Commandment, and you better, you're going to get stoned. He doesn't say any of that at all. In fact, he just looks at her. And speaks to her. So my argument is, is he never says convert and change. It's his gaze of her allowing herself to be seen that, that, that transforms her, that reveals her, that purifies her, that she can't hide and she doesn't want to. The merciful gaze of Christ. In no way, shape, or form do we see that he is judging her or condemning her. And then the, 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 the woman who's bleeding, when he turns around, he wants to see her. Who is it that touched me? He doesn't say, woman, you disgusting, filthy person. You dirtied me because you're ritually impure. No, your faith has saved you. Go, be healed. She felt, she felt that she was healed when she was touched. In no way she performed do we see Christ Condemning. He looks and it's a healing. It's a merciful gaze. And so when we hide from the gaze of the Lord, from the Father, 
we're denying ourselves from being seen, from being known, from being loved. But Jesus' gaze heals us. It transforms us. But more than that, it establishes our identity. And for me, this is crucial. He establishes our identity. As we're going to talk about, this is the real struggle that, that we have, and I think particularly young people have today, is it's not about this action or that action, it's about who I am, about identity, and what is our true identity. And so, ultimately, our true identity as Christians is what? I'm sorry, water in my face. Through baptism, we are beloved sons and daughters in whom the Father delights. That's who we are. And all this other stuff that we want to put our identity in distracts us from that core identity. You are a beloved son or a beloved daughter. That's your core. There's other identities we have with that. And so what does Jesus do? By looking at the woman, at the well, he establishes her identity in sort of this deeper symbolic way as spouse and as bride. You know, you're the symbol of the church who's converted. You're with me. But with the other woman, what does he say? Have faith, daughter. Your faith has sealed you. Daughter. He calls her daughter, which we're going to see why that's important. He establishes her identity as a beloved daughter. That's much more important than the healing. Because he, he raises her up, he establishes the identity, and we're going to see in just a second why that is. Because to understand that passage of the woman who is bleeding, that's situated within the middle of a larger story. Do you know what that larger story is, scripture scholars? What story I'm talking about? Jesus, it's, a, it's one of the weird passages where Jesus encounters, it depends on the, on, on the gospel, he encounters Jairus, who comes to him and says, I need you to come heal my daughter who's sick. And he says, all right, I'm going. I think it's the only time in scripture that we see Jesus follow someone else. He follows him. And on the way, he encounters this woman. And then after he heals her, he goes uh, to the house and heals Jairus' daughter. So why is it significant? that Jesus calls her daughter because you're comparing her to Jairus' daughter. But Jairus' daughter, we don't know her name, has an advocate, has someone who speaks on her behalf and goes to Jesus. This woman has no advocate. All she has is the accuser. And so by Jesus, I am showing you that God is your father and loves you and establishes her identity as a daughter. That's why that's so important. That's the real healing. That's the restoration. That's the redemption. And so now, who is this woman's advocate who speaks on her behalf? It's Jesus. He is her advocate, is the one who reveals the father to her. But I'm going to advocate here, and this is something I think is very important, is that it's not just that Jesus sees and knows and loves these women, 
In the same way that it's not just that the Father sees, knows, and loves us, there's something else. I, I, I would often encounter in working with students, and particularly often with young women, sometimes with young men, my father loves me. My mom loves me. I know it. But they have to love me. I don't think they like it. They don't want to spend time with me. They don't enjoy my presence. And it made me realize that it's not just enough to say I love you. And then God doesn't just love us because it's easy for us in our experience of our own parents and our family of origins, which is often the root of shame. 75% of the time, it's the root of shame. Is that we convey it to God. My dad didn't see me, so why does God see me? He had to love me. Why doesn't God have to love me? It's an obligation. But remember what when Christ is baptized and the voice of the Father comes from heaven. This is my beloved son. But what's the next passage? In whom I am well pleased, or in some translations, in whom I delight. The Father delights in the Son. Christ delights in seeing this woman. And so in the same way, he not only sees the woman, he's like, okay, woman, let's bring your husband out here. Imagine what Christ faces as he sees this woman. He delights in her, the bride. In the same way that our face, when we see someone we really love, we're excited to see our face lights up. It conveys not only that we love this person, but that we delight in them. Smiles not just on our face, it's in our eyes. And it's something that, that someone pointed out to me, uh, uh, interpretation of the encounter of Christ with the woman, the hemorrhage. And this is more of a theological point, but I think it's a beautiful one. So whenever Christ says, who is it that touched me? He wants to see them. And he turns around, and Scripture says, he saw her. That's what he says to my daughter. Well, imagine this. So Jesus is the Son of God incarnate. And so from all eternity, the Son of God is the eternal Logos who is there and helped to create the universe. He knew this woman and his divine intellect. Just as God, the Son, Father, Spirit has known all of us from all eternity. He knew who we were, who we who were going to be. And so in the incarnation here, you could imagine that the Son become man had been waiting for all eternity to cast his human eyes on this woman. So that's how you really should interpret it. All of eternity, he has been waiting to see this woman with his human eyes. So we all received Jesus as this stoic. Who is the touch man? No. He knew it was. He'd been waiting to see this woman, and she snuggled behind him. And he was so excited to see her, finally, after eternity of waiting, to delight in her, to see her. His face would have been lit up. In the same way that the Lord waits to see us with his his eyes, his glorified eyes, when we get to heaven. He's waiting for us. I often say that he's also waiting for us in the Eucharist. It's not about us, what we get, 
we go to we go it is what we get it's great but we go to the eucharist because the lord is waiting to see us and spend time with us he delights in us as we're going to see it's so important and so that's the excitement it's living in the gaze of the father always which we always do but when we sin we try to hide god i don't want you to see me when we're filled with shame we hide but we can't escape it but it's never a judgmental gaze he knows what we've done he knows what we're going to do he knows what we're capable of he's not saying i'm disappointed in you i'm ashamed of you no worst things to say you know if i know what you're capable of believe me jesus knows what you're capable of <clears throat> the priest can be merciful so can the lord that's the message and the way we really understand this what it means to live in the father's gaze is to look at the life of the one person who always lived in the father's gaze never tried to hide out of shame and always was rooted in her identity. And who is that? Our Lady, Mary. She was without sin, the opposite of Eve. The fathers of the church compare Mary and Eve. Mary's the new Eve, but she is the one who doesn't hide. The one who's not filled with shame because she's sinless. So there's no need to hide. And in fact, the way that I can understand this, that passage in the Magnificat, he has, what, looked with favor on his lowly servant. That he's, the father's looked at Mary. She lives always in his sight. Nothing to be ashamed of. It's always noon. And that's why Mary knows herself as daughter, as daughter Zion, as, as the symbol of the bride. That she knows herself as being delighted in. This idea that we have of Mary's always walking and stuff. No. Maybe sometimes she was. At the cross she was. Think of the holiest people that you know. The most typify Mary. They are all pretty joyful. If you're not really joyful and you're always sour and you're kind of disgruntled, then you got some shame or maybe you just didn't drink your coffee. I don't know what it is. <laughs> but the holiest people are joyful people. So Mary would have had... She, how could we, Mary, we call Mary the cause of our joy? How could she be the cause of our joy if she is not joyful? But she's joyful because she knows who she is, and she knows the Father delights in her. And so over my time in working with students and knowing what shame looks like when someone hides and someone's insecure, even though they tell me they're not, I know they are, I also know the qualities of someone who lives in the Father's gaze, who's not living in shame, who, who, who knows who they are. And as a result, I think we can also say these are the qualities of Our Lady. And I'm going to give you three of them. And something good that we can sort of examine our own lives by. And we can see it. It comes down to three things. First of all, the person who is living in the Father's gaze, whether it be female or male, whatever it is, who lets them... There can be times, of course, there's guilt. There are times that we may hide, but in general, the ones who are constituted and, and living in the Father's gaze, number one, they are confident people. Not prideful, but confident. Faith with. Faith with Christ. We know this from studies. 
the kids who are brought up in stable families turn out to be the most confident ones. Not in themselves, but as St. Therese teaches us, confidence in the Father. Confidence in the Father's love. He's not there to judge. He's not there to condemn. A Father who keeps his promises and knows that he delights in us. It's not pride, but it's rooted in the core identity. I'm confident. I am unafraid. Unafraid. So I'm going to step out there boldly. I'm going to do what I need to do. I'm going to follow God's call. And I know that your school, you got some confident young women. Sometimes you think they're a little bit too confident. But there's a difference between confidence and pride. It's a difference. And you usually know when you see it. But tied to that is they're secure. The opposite of insecure. The, the etymology, secura, free from care. Why are they secure? Because they know that the father's looking out for them. It's like a kid. A kid can play in the playground because he knows the parent is there watching. No, nothing's going to hurt them. They feel safe. But a kid who's grown up without those parents will often become very insecure. We know the father will provide for our needs. That we belong. We're holding his hand. We don't need to be scared. Very little worry, very little anxiety. Secure in their identity. It's a daughter. They know that I am always in, or her son, always in the sight or the gaze of the Heavenly Father. And then from that, the person who is confident that the Lord loves them and delights them, who is secure and can live in that, is a person who is free. Free. The freedom of the sons of God, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8, verse 21. Freedom of the Spirit knows the Lord trusts them. They're free to make decisions. They're free to act. They're not crippled by paralysis analysis. There's no interest in God micromanaging their lives. This is the big thing. This lack of confidence, this lack of freedom. I can't act if I do the wrong thing. Why? Because you're afraid God's going to punish you. But the Lord trusts you. You're his son or his daughter. He's giving you the kingdom. Make your up your mind. If your dad called you every morning and told you what to wear and what to eat and who to hang out with, you'd go nuts. Why do you want God the Father to do this? Why? He's not interested in micromanaging your life. He has much bigger things to do. Ask his will, but if he doesn't tell it, make your decision. It's the master who gives the, the talents and says, go make me some money. He doesn't say, well, I think you should go invest in, in Twitter. And I think you should go and buy the store. He doesn't care. Just do something to give him glory. If he wants you to do it specifically, he will tell you. No, this is the we force we're called to be free. And he'll guide you in the right direction. But, 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 but whenever we... We're not confident, secure. We're scared all the time. And our freedom is limited, particularly our freedom to love, to be loved. If you're hiding and you're not confident, you're not going to be confident to love other people because you're afraid of being rejected. You're afraid of being hurt. Confident, secure, and free specifically to love. This is the person, male or female, who is living in the gaze of the Father. And so I think it perfectly describes marriage. This is who she is. 
not some little quiet wallflower. She's the one who could stand by the cross. She's the one who could say, Jesus, take care of these people. Go make some water into wine. Because she knew that Jesus was going to do it. This is what we're all created to be. We're going to have bad times. But when we're living in shame, you're not going to be this. And if you want, and, and I say it, I, I work with a lot of men and women, a lot of daughters. I want confident daughters. I'm a feminist. I do. I want confident women. And we need that because men are generally pretty stupid. <laughs> and we need it. We need it in the church. We need it in society. But if everybody keeps living in their shame and doesn't deal with their crap, and bring it to the light, it ain't going to happen. And if you don't deal with it, you're not going to help your girls deal with it. Isn't that what y'all want in Mount Carmel to produce these confident, secure, and free women? I hope y'all do. I want priests who are confident, free, and secure. We're going to struggle, but look, a priest will fill with shame. We don't want to ordain you. Don't want to ordain you. Not interested. Deal with your crap, then maybe we'll see about it. Make bad fathers, make bad mothers, make bad teachers. We have a generation of people living with shame. This, and again, there's nothing to be shamed about. Jesus took it to the cross. He put the light on it. There's still sin. There's things we need to be guilty of. That's why we have confession. But nobody's bad. They do bad things. The problem is a lot of people have never experienced it, as we're going to see. And you have the opportunity as teachers and as faculty, as counselors, whatever it is, cafeteria workers even, to be able to help build women like this. This is what we need. We can't do it if we're not confident, secure, and free to love in ourselves. So, kind of trying to land the plane here. Where, where is it so we acknowledge what our shame is, where we hide, and why we need to let the Lord see us and delight in us. Where is it primarily that we do this? In prayer, yes, but I think specifically as Catholics in the gift of the Eucharist. Christ, truly present, not symbolic, truly present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. He doesn't have eyeballs. But he still is there sacramentally present. And when we go, particularly in adoration, but even if Christ is not exposed, Jesus' healing rays can see through the tabernacle. All right? <laughs> he, he can. He can. Walk through walls. He can, he can see you through the tabernacle. And so this is what prayer is. You know, you have the story of Jean Vianney. He would go into the church, and there's a man praying, and he said, well, How do you pray? I look at him, he looks at me. But really, it's him looking at you. You don't have to look at him. You don't need to look at him. He's looking at you. Ideally, you can, you can hold his gaze. But if you allow the Lord to look at you, he will constitute you in your identity. You may not feel it. It's like taking vitamins or medicine. You don't, oh, I took the medicine, I feel better. No, it's gradual, but the healing comes. And so in the same way, if we let the Lord see us and delight in us, this is essentially what prayer is. 
Prayer is not what you do. It's not a bunch of saying prayers, as good as it is. It is allowing the Lord to see love and delight in us. That's all it is. And people who realize that are not hiding. They're not fidgeting around all the time. But it's easy to fidget around. Lord, I'm here. I'm here for you to see me and delight in me. Take care of your business. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to go play the crossword on your phone. That's, that's not prayer. But, Lord, I'm here for you to do the work. For you to see me. Even in my shame. Even in my distraction. He doesn't care. He doesn't care about that. I'm like, how many of you are like, if your friend comes, I don't really want to come talk to you because I don't want to be a burden on you. That's shame speaking. I don't want to bother you. I, you know, I'm feeling bad. None of you are going to say, oh, look, your hair is not perfectly done. Don't come talk to me. Your life is not perfectly done. I can't deal with you. If you wouldn't do that to your friend, why would Jesus do that to you? He's... He's delighted he didn't show for five minutes. It's because in that gaze, that's where he makes us holy. And so I'll end with a quote which is kind of long and somewhat meandering. And if you know the author, he tends to be long and meandering, but it's still true. And it's from uh, the Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar. And he talks about what holiness is. Holiness... Holiness is all these different things. Holiness is praying a rosary, and holiness is being on our knees, and all that. That's great. No, this is what he says. It's, it's a long quote, and so I'll try to explain it as I go. He says, quote, Holiness consists in enduring God's glance. Holiness exists in enduring God's glance. Because it's not easy. If we're filled with shame, we do not want to look at it. It may appear mere passivity to withstand the look of an eye. But everyone knows how much exertion is required when this occurs in an essential encounter. Our glances mostly brush by each other indirectly, or they turn quickly away, or they give themselves not personally, but only socially. Looking over the crowd, glancing over the crowd, we know how hard it is when that when we talk to that person who makes really good creepy eye contact. Oh. To look it into my soul. So too do we constantly flee from God into a distance that is theoretical, rhetorical, sentimental, aesthetic, or most frequently pious. And he's not trying to deny piety, but we can have all of our piety and our walls up, and it's really putting walls up so God doesn't see us. See my actions. See how many rosaries I pray. See how, what mass I go to. See what scripture I read. I'm not saying anything is bad, but we do this all so the Lord can't see us. He sees our external works. Or as he says, we flee from him to external works. And yet the best thing would be to surrender one's naked heart to the fire of this all-penetrating glance. Here's my heart, Lord. I think it's full of crap most of the time. It's broken. It's hurt. But here it is. Because it's his glance that will heal it. He delights in us, but yet sometimes it's painful. That's how it works. The heart within itself have to catch fire. If it were not always artificially dispersing the rays that come to it 
is through a magnifying glass. Here are the rays, but I'm going I'm to disperse it so I don't have to deal with it. It doesn't have to be purified. Such enduring would be the opposite of a Stoic's hardening his face. It would be yielding, declaring oneself beaten, capitulating, and trusting oneself, casting oneself into him. That's the saint. The saint is not the one who conquers, but allows God to conquer him or her. It would be childlike loving, since for children, the glance of the father is not painful. With wide open eyes, they look into his. Little Therese, great little Therese of Lisieux, could do it. Augustine's magnificent formula on the essence of eternity, to look at him who is looking at you. But it takes being a son or a daughter. It takes being childlike. That's the key. So even when we talk about son or or daughter, they're both different ways of saying child. And even though you're 50 years old, you're still someone's child. We're still the father's child. And the child who knows the father does not run from the gaze. It's like, dad comes back from work. See me. Think of all the kids the kids do to get their parents' attention. Because the parents are busy doing other things. Hey, look at me. Look at me. And this is what we all want, even though at times we try to convince ourselves that we don't want it. So the, the real key here is to encounter the Lord. He's going to find us. You can run all you want. He's going to find us. And often he'll surprise us. He's not there to surprise us and punch us in the face. He's there to delight in us. So quit running. And so that's, I guess, I know we'll, we have some time. I'll have time for questions or whatever. I'm ending here a little earlier because I didn't read half of the Gospel of John. Um, but in the time, I know we're visiting. We don't have the Eucharist here now. We'll have the Eucharist later. But I encourage you in your parish, if there's a chapel at Mount Carmel, I'm sure there might be. To let Jesus, the Father, look at you. Say, Lord, I've been hiding this stuff. I've been hiding myself, my shame. No, here. Look at it, but more importantly, look at me. Pay attention to me. And let him see you. And yeah, it may be uncomfortable because he's going to have the creepy eye contact. He's going to look at you. But it's going to burn things away. But ultimately, it's a look of delight. To look at delight. And that's what the Samaritan woman experienced, and that's what the woman with the hemorrhage experienced. The Lord looking not with judgment, not with condemnation, but with delight. Seeing beyond everything, all the lies, all the shame, seeing not there not just as the advocate, but as the, the lover, as the father, as the friend. So try to take some time to reflect on that. And then, in your own life, because why? Because we're going to come back in the third talk, as I've been alluding to. What what happens after this encounter, particularly for the Samaritan woman? We'll look at that. Because we need to have this encounter if we're going to go do what we need to do next week when school starts or when we go home to our family, or when we encounter our friends, whatever it is. Not always easy to do, but if we 
have not allowed ourselves to be looked on with mercy and love, we're not going to be able to do it to other people. Even if we have, it's still going to be sometimes hard to do because people get in our nerves. And some people don't want to be looked on with love, and they're going to attack, or they're going to run. But we need to be able to have the capacity to do so. But it comes by our own, in a Marian, childlike way, letting the Lord look at us and delight in us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, was in the beginning, is now, and shall be, or without end. Amen.